If you turn in your Bibles to uh, the book of Psalms, the book of Psalms is about uh, a third of the way in approximately. And uh, what we're doing this summer is we're going through this, this book called the Psalms. Um, really, it's called lyrics because we don't have the record of the, the music that goes along with these, but these are just lyrics to songs that some ancient followers of God would have had. And so there's, there's tunes and whatnot that would have gone along with them. And really, they're all over the map. So we haven't really decided on particular topics. And you notice each week seems a little bit different from the last. Um, but essentially, what I've tried to do is choose all psalms within the first kind of book of books. So there's uh, 150 psalms. And uh, what I've done is essentially chosen uh, all psalms from the first 41 psalms. And some of them are bright and cheerful. Some of them are very familiar. Some of them are a little dark and gloomy. It seems to match what we're uh, facing today in terms of the weather because we're in Psalm 12. Uh, And if you notice from the title, it's not exactly the long weekend kind of cheerful psalm title, The Faithful Have Vanished. But it's an important psalm. And it's what Uh, scholars would call a communal lament, meaning this isn't just an individual kind of crying out here. This is is really a community that just has this question mark about how God's asked or or, or how God acts. I know that you've never had questions about God, right? You've come in, all your questions about God are always answered on time and just the way you like them, right? I mean, I'm like John, I'm saying that facetiously because I know for a fact that if you've believed and trusted in Jesus for any length of time, you've put your trust in God for any length of time, you've had a question mark about how he acts. You've wondered, even if you haven't said it out loud, you've wondered, you know what, God, if, if I were you, I'm not saying I want to be you, but if I were you, I think I'd do things a little bit differently. Ever have that feeling? You don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to admit this. You ever go, you know what, God? This is, I, I like what you've done here, but I would speed it up just, just a hair. I would bring the timing more into uh, my line of thinking. I would center this more around me. What well, we're going to find today that uh, this doesn't have a lot of answers. It's not a psalm that gives us all kinds of theological basis. Theology is a big word that we use for the study of God. We don't have this heavy, rich doctrine always in the psalms. Although I think there's lots of doctrine in the psalms. There's lots of great teaching in the psalms. Sometimes there is no answer. There's simply kind of a model for how to pray. And so today, if you want a lot of answers to your big questions about God, you're going to walk away pretty disappointed this morning. But if you just simply want help with your prayer life and you want the license to pray some things that you didn't know you could pray, then you may be helped by this morning's psalm. And so let's read it together, Psalm 12. If you don't have a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand and one of the ushers would love to bring you a Bible. And we'd encourage you to keep that uh, if that's your first Bible. And there we are in Psalm 12, verse 1. And this is how it reads. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. Gets right to the punch, doesn't it? For the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. 
Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us, who is master over us. Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place them in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. Why, triple dog dare you to get a mug that sits on your desk in your office that says, may the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. It's a harsh word, it seems. And this word imprecatory sometimes comes up. It's a long word that we never use. Uh, Just basically means you're kind of calling down God's power to act in a particular situation. You find some fairly harsh words, so to speak, that people pray. But I think, you know, the more I'm into this psalm, the more I realize that there's, there's something to this that's actually very helpful for us. And so uh, let's just dive right into kind of the first, um, the first two things that we're going to look at. And really, the, the first one is, what's wrong with your picture? This is, the, this is just what's wrong with the world as you see it. You ever ask that question? You know, what's, what's wrong with how things are going? You ever looked around at all, opened your eyes and simply looked around and you have this question mark, why do all these things happen? There's all kinds of questions like why do bad things happen to good people? Or you might know it as why do good things happen to bad people? That's what I ask. I'm not so much why are bad things happen to good people, but why do good things happen to bad people? Isn't that opposite of quote unquote what people think about things like karma? Why, why is it that despite the fact that people kind of stay on the straight and narrow, they can't get as far ahead economically as those who don't, as those who cut corners, as those who cheat, as those who steal? That's actually the very nature of the passage, and that's really the first four verses are all these question marks from the writer. The writer, uh, we don't really know the writer of the Psalms. They're often attributed to a man named David who was kind of the prototypical God follower. He was the king of Israel. Uh, He would be known to all Israelites as the best king of Israel. We don't know if he actually wrote them or if he just collected them or if he personified them in the best way, but honestly it doesn't really matter that much. They have great value regardless of who wrote them. But you can imagine again, and I go back to this quite a bit, that they make sense because they're from David because David actually had a very significant period of his life that he spent running from the most powerful person in Israel at the time. And so he had these questions. I mean, he was on the run for approximately 10 years. So imagine the prime minister. I know it doesn't, it seems far-fetched for us a little bit, right? Like the prime minister's after you. But imagine the prime minister is after you. You're the next prime minister that's supposed to come about and he's after you and wants you dead so that you can't take over for him for 10 years. That's David's situation. He's he's 
frustrated because he's actually just being obedient to the call of God. God had anointed him through this special service, through a special prophet. He knows he's going to be king. People know it. People are starting to follow him. He's got some soldiers that are kind of behind him and, and he's built up basically a band of brothers and he's ready to go. He's ready to be king. He's ready to take battle and he can't. And in fact, when he's completely faithful to God and what God has asked him to do, he is on the run for his life. He's a nomad. I know some of you, this is a great idea, but he's, he's camping out in the wilderness. I mean, some of you, that, that I'd, I'd love to be on the run camping out in the wilderness right now. Not that kind of wilderness. It's like desert wilderness, so it's terrible. But he's essentially on the run the whole time. Always in fear for his life. Can never fall asleep without thinking, tonight might be the night where someone will betray me and stab my heart with a sword. You can imagine, he knows how this feels. Now maybe we don't have people on after us like this. Maybe we're not quite on the run, so to speak. But essentially, I think it's not a stretch for us to ask the same kind of question. Questions like, where are all the faithful people, God? Some of you have been part of Urban Grace for a while. We just celebrated five years anniversary. We've actually been kind of gathering and meeting a little bit longer than that. Um, some of us have asked, hey, we've been faithful here, God. So how come we don't have more partners to help serve? How come our budget isn't bigger? How come the churches started at the same time of us are massive compared to where we are? I mean, maybe this isn't something that registers for you, but I think collectively as a church family, I have this question all the time. Hey, if we're so faithful, God, why aren't we as far ahead as others? Maybe this is your question in your family. Maybe you're very faithful to your husband, wife. You're faithful to your children. You've taught them the gospel and they're growing up and they're not following Jesus. Hey, what's the deal here? You said be faithful and I'm nowhere. Maybe in your work. You read scripture and it says to follow God with all your heart and put him above all things. And so you do that and actually you lower your position at work because you're the only Christian. Do I have your attention yet? You ever had these kinds of questions and almost been afraid to even say them out loud? Am I being disrespectful of God? Am I... Am I Am I going to cause God's wrath to come upon me because I say these things? And I think my favorite thing about this psalm is that it allows me to ask the question of God. It allows me to say, hey, where have all the faithful people gone, God? Where are they? This isn't talking about just kind of culture in the time. This is actually talking about those who have said they've covenanted with God. These are like circumcised Hebrew people. Circumcision, that's a long story I can't get into it this morning, but was the mark of a God follower of the time. These people that signed up. This is not just random kind of evil people. These are people from amongst. And this is the question he has. Where are the faithful 
Christians. Where are they? Sometimes we need to just sit with that question. But perhaps we just need to feel the, the opportunity to say it out loud. To say that this frustrates us. It's a communal lament. It's not intended exclusively for individuals. It's intended for a whole community. And it's possible for us to, as a whole community, simply ask this question, hey, where are all the faithful churches? I'm never going to name names publicly, but there are times when I wonder how come a church that doesn't preach the gospel gets to grow? You ever wonder that? How come, a fa- how come an unfaithful church that says they're a church, that says they're based on Jesus, gets to go every Sunday without ever mentioning the name of Jesus, without ever preaching about sin and repentance? And how come they get to move forward and our church doesn't get to move forward in the same way? Despite the fact that I'm, I'm overjoyed with the amount of things that are happening at Urban Grace. That's not to diminish in any ways. I'm excited and thankful. We've got so many new people every week. We can't hardly keep up, it seems. And yet, there's this question mark. Where have all the faithful people gone? You see in the text, he says they vanished. The big problem seems to be people aren't paying attention to what they say. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. Uh, This idea of flattering lips and double heart, we don't use this in our language. And so we have to take a moment to think about this for a second. This flattering lips and double heart means there's two things going on. Right? And we, we don't use that term, but we know exactly what it means when I describe it this way. Have you ever had someone who says something and thinks another? Have you ever done that yourself? You've said one thing and you really thought another? You might say it because you're afraid of what people think. You're afraid of disappointing people. Christians are notoriously bad at this, by the way. You ever said, oh, that's too bad, I'll pray for you. Why do you say it and then not done it? Because you just don't know what else to say or in your heart you just, you don't really want to do anything. That's too bad. Or maybe you've said to someone, hey, we should go for coffee sometime. And inside, I hope, I hope that never happens. That's what's happening in his context. People are having flattering lips. They're saying great things about God. They're saying great things about one another. But then they're treating each other terribly. And he says, hey, what's the deal, God? What's the deal? Where have all the faithful people gone? For us, this, this, this issue of kind of what we say and what we do doesn't maybe seem like that big of a deal. It's technically not breaking the law to lie in our culture. If you murder someone, you're breaking the law. But if you lie to someone, that's not breaking the law. That's just lying to someone. But for an ancient God follower, that's one of the Ten Commandments. And they're just treating this like it doesn't matter. Commandment number nine says, you should not bear false witness. You should not say one thing and then do another. You should not say what you're going to do and then not do it. There's very strict ramifications in God's word about this. And he says, look at God, there's commandment breakers everywhere. There's one, there's one, there's one, there's one, there's one, there's one, there's one. There's one. I have them in my own family. You can just hear it. So this is what he says. 
May the Lord cut off all flattering lips. Now this sounds in some ways like the author, the <laughs> moment of the author, doesn't it? But he's not talking about like snip, snip, cut them off. That's a little bit much for the text. What he's essentially saying is cut them out of the community. Cut them out. Uh, this is the way the Bible always talks about those who won't deal with their sin and won't pay attention to their sin. The idea of church discipline actually comes from this. That if someone does, says yes to being a follower of Jesus Christ and then acts in a different way, you're supposed to cut them out of community. Not to destroy them, not to, not to get rid of them, but to get their attention. And so you, you can't just say one thing and do another and be part of this community. Those who are in this community must covenant, must commit to doing what they say. And so the way church discipline actually works is like remove them from community. Do not allow them from being in community. Not to destroy them, but to get their attention and say, until you deal with your sin, you can't just say stuff you don't mean. I mean, we recognize this all over the world. But right? anytime you do anything now, you sign up for iTunes, you got to connect to a covenant. I promise to pay my bill on time. I mean, you, we've signed our lives away to Visa. I don't pay my bill. They have the right to follow me down and take all my money, which they do anyways. This is what the author is saying. Hey, just, they've signed up. I can't do it because there's no, none of us left. You've got to do it. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips. May you remove these people from community. And in that day and age, in that culture, to be removed from community was certain death. I mean, it doesn't mean a whole lot for us to rem be removed from even a church community because there's another church down the street usually that will come and accept us. But in that day and an age, in that culture, to have to go on life as an individual, was literally to shrivel away and die. It was everything. You lose your family. You lose your connections to resources. You lose your support network. You lose the whole people that help raise your children. No more babysitters. You possibly lost economically because things were passed down through family. So if you were cut off, you lost your economic advantage. And so what the author is simply asking is, please God, can you get their attention? Sounds a, a, a little bit more like a, a decent prayer request. And I think immediately for us, there's an application that we as a community, when we see all this going on, when we see this unfaithfulness going on, rather than simply be idle about it and sit idly by, that we gather for prayer. One of the opportunities we have as city groups is why we want you to gather regularly in city groups is because it's a, it's a weekly opportunity for a prayer meeting where you could pray these sorts of things. Dear God, please get our city's attention. Please get the church's attention. Cut them off if you have to. We're begging here, God. Get our attention. 
It's a very bold prayer, isn't it? You have to be pretty serious about that. It's difficult really to explain this kind of a prayer meeting to those you would work it with, right? What are you doing tonight? Well, I'm going to a prayer meeting where I'm asking God if he can get the city's attention. I think you'll have someone's attention if you say that out loud. And yet there's no judgment from God here yet at all. There never is. God does not swoop in and say, whoa, 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 whoa. hold the horse, hold the fort here. You don't understand like I understand. No, he lets us. He gives us this opportunity to pray these real prayers. This is what I love about God. And we don't have to hide our real feelings. And someone said, like, if you're thinking it, God already knows it, so you might as well pray it. It's actually pretty good advice. As mad at God as you ever are, you've already sinned against him in your heart. You might as well talk to him about it. You might as well confess. God, I don't, I don't get the picture, but come on here. I mean, I, I have this question as an individual with another one of our church plants. We've been involved in a church plant with a, a, a husband and wife team and a family team that have been here, Elroy and Lynn Seneker. We need more faithful churches. And she's been diagnosed with a severe form of cancer. And we don't know the outcome. And it's frustrating. These are great people. One of the few faithful people who are just preaching the gospel. What are you doing, God? Perhaps he's just getting our attention and saying, cry out to me. Cry out to me. Call out to me. Don't be silent. You see, they're almost the arrogancy that they have. Those who say, with their tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us, who is master over us. Kind of like the old, what are you going to do? You ever had anyone do that to you? <laughs> hey, you shouldn't be doing that. What are you going to do? This is, this is the way these people are acting. They're so arrogant. And we feel almost that arrogant from our, arrogance from our culture. Like, I, maybe I'm ranting about this one too many times, but I had this question when we had this major flood in our city in 2013. And I thought this was an opportunity for us to kind of go, boy, we're just not in the control that we think we're in. All it takes is a little heavy rain at the wrong time and in a more amount, and it should just get our attention. You know what our city did? I feel like it just kind of went to God, what are you going to do? We can take care of ourselves to hell or high water. We'll go to hell before we ask for help. Now, maybe that's an oversimplification of it. I get that. But I feel like you and I are living in this culture where we're like this. We face this, the arrogancy of people. What are you going to do, God? Like that somehow the burden of proof of existence is on God and not on them. Like somehow God's got to come up with some good answers for us or else he's not really God. I, I don't think God is at all worried about that. Kind of, you can say that all you want, but in the end you die and I live. This is a real question for us. And here's where I love the second part. It's very simple. 
What's God going to do about it? What's God's response? Well, this is, this is how a communal lament is supposed to work. You're supposed to basically vent all your frustration toward God. And then even as you pray it out loud and you pray it together, somehow you're lifted up into almost the belief that you're saying. That's, that's how prayer often works. Have you ever noticed, and maybe you don't do this, when you're frustrated with someone, if you ever just break down and pray for them, how hard it is to stay frustrated at them? I don't know if you've noticed this or not, it works. Like you, you, you get into some sort of a conflict and you just, I get frustrated at some of these other churches and then I start praying for them and man, it's hard to stay mad at them. Because there's something about just expressing this that makes me realize my own futility, my own weakness, my own inability to see what's going on. And so this is essentially what we see in this part of the text, 5 through 8. Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. So the image that doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense to us, or we may not recognize unless we read a lot of the Psalms. But a lot of the Psalms and a lot of the prophets talk about God being risen almost as if from a slumber, like now he's ready to work. Right, like almost this image, like the boss has heard complaints all day and finally at the end of the day, he stands up or she stands up from her desk and says, okay, we're going to go deal with this now, okay? And everyone kind of, ooh, the boss is on the move. This is what God says. God says, I always see the plight of the needy. When they beg for help, I rise. I stand up from the desk and I'm ready to do something. In some ways, this is, even though it's a lament, it's a statement of confidence that is a little bit national anthem-like. Like, we're ready to go here. And when God says that, then the, the psalm continues to say in verse 6, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. This is the author's intent is to directly kind of give us some comparison here. So you have people that are completely unfaithful with their words. They say one thing and do another. They never follow through with what they're supposed to be doing. They never do what they say against God's words. What's God's word like? It's not just a good word. It's a good word times seven. This isn't just silver you find on the ground. This is silver refined seven times till it's pure. It's the most valuable process you can possibly go through with refining silver. It's pure. It's right. Meaning God does what he says he'll do. God does what he says he'll do. At this point, some of us need to just take a moment and think about this. For all of our requests, all of our frustrations, all of our longings, all of our beggings, God does what he says he will do. You, O oh Lord, will keep them. You'll take care of the poor and needy, won't you, God? And you can see God, I don't want to give this image that he sits behind a desk, but God sitting behind his desk nodding everything. The words of the Lord are pure words. Yes, they are. Like silver refined seven times. Absolutely. You, O oh Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. You got that right. 
On every side, the wicked prowl as vileness is exalted amongst the children of man. But you got her back, don't you, God? Yes, I do. We need to hear this again and again. That there's nothing that's going on in our culture. There's nothing about the questions that we have of God that he can't answer. And here's what I noticed. Two applications really for us. That God promises to protect the needy. For those that love God. You're in a need. God promises that when we love him, he will protect us. Maybe not exclusively from all physical danger, but ultimately he's got a plan that allows us, whether we pass away from this world or not, he's got us. That no matter how many people try to take our lives away, or if they do, one thing they cannot take away is our trust in Jesus Christ. They can never take that away. You realize whenever you say culture or people or someone else has weakened my faith, that's not true. You and I have been given the great opportunity from Jesus Christ to put our trust in whom, in, into him, who is God become man. We can trust in God and nobody can take that away. No amount of YouTube videos that says the burden of proof is on God can take this faith that I have in Jesus Christ away from me. Or you. Nobody. God will protect us. God will protect my faith. You're in need this morning. You need better faith. You need stronger faith. Join the club. Welcome to Urban Grace. We are a community filled with people who are begging God for stronger faith. You're, you, you'll fit right at home here. If you have question marks and you want God to bolster your faith and your journey is, seems like it's this or this, you'll fit right in. Because that's what our community is like when you really get into it. People begging God to show up. People begging God, help me when I'm in time of need. You promise to protect me. And God promises to protect us. How do we know this? Because he put his word. You know what God does with his word? He does what he says. Did you know when God asks you to do what you say that he's not just trying to get you to live morally, that he's basically saying, I want you to be a little image of what I'm like. So why is it important for Christians not to be double-minded or double-hearted because morally we'll get ahead in life? No, it's because we reflect a God who always does what he says he'll do. That's why. And whenever we don't do what we'll say we'll do, we're lying about what we believe in God. Puts a little different spin on that, doesn't it? How can we can trust God? Because he puts his whole reputation behind this. God's word means everything to him. It's why in spite of all the technology, he still seems to be pleased to have a poor old sinner who apparently wears pink Sunday after Sunday stand up and blabber about how good God is. He still likes to do this. He still loves to show that his word is true and that he's faithful to his word. Now some of you say, hey, he hasn't shown up yet. And I would say this, isn't that our biggest issue usually? Not with what God does, but with his timing. 
Amen? Anyone? Amen? <laughs> Sometimes, don't you love to say, hey God, love what you're doing here. Pick that up a bit and we'd be great. Hey God, I, I, I know you're going to make all things right in the end, but can you start a little bit early for me? Because it works good for me. You know, there's a fascinating story about Jesus. And some of you maybe are asking, hey, where's Jesus in all of this? And I would say Jesus epitomized this. What God has done through Jesus is he's brought himself to this earth, not just to kind of show off, but to show us how it's done. That's part of the truth of the gospel. The gospel is God became man, lived the life that we should have lived and died the death we should be dying. That's the gospel in short form. But the amazing thing is, that's not the only part to the gospel that it goes super rich and deep in that Jesus doesn't just come to this earth to pay the price. He also comes to show us how to depend on God. Like he wants us to. And there's an amazing story in Matthew chapter 4. You may or may not know this story. It's about the temptation of Jesus. Before Jesus really began doing any great preaching, he's about 30 years old, and the Spirit leads him into the wilderness. The Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that God gives to us to guide us, leads Jesus Christ incarnate into the desert wilderness for 40 days for a fast and some testing period. What was he testing? It's my question. Here's what he was doing. He was testing himself. He was showing that he trusted in God. And it's interesting, this little exchange that happens, the way it's, it's described in Matthew chapter 4 is that there's three times that Satan, we don't even know what he looks like, how he acts, but we just know what he says. And there's three times that Satan get, gets in the grill of the human Jesus. And he tempts him. He tests him. He challenges him. And what is he challenging? Here's what he's challenging. Is God going to do what he said he was going to do? That's all the Satan is testing. And there's one in particular that I love. Some of you think this is about Jesus being hungry and I, I think there's some of that, but I think we've got to think even deeper than that, that there's more going on here. And so this is the story very quickly. First four verses. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry and the tempter came to him and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. What was Jesus ultimately saying? Well, some say well, he's showing how he memorized scripture, that he happens to be in Deuteronomy. I think that's entirely possible. I just think that misses the larger picture of what's going on here. Because Jesus actually turned something from nothing into bread later on in life. What was Satan tempting him to actually do? Just make some sandwiches? No, here's what he was doing. He was saying, God said the plan would be that later on you would be, have your glory revealed. Why don't you do that now, Jesus? Why don't you show your power now? 
You know what Jesus says? Not in your timing, but in God's. I don't live by your timing. I don't run my life by your timing. I run by God's timing. And I'm trusting in God's plan right now. See, this is the constant temptation for us. Satan comes to us and says, oh yeah, God's good, but is he good to you right now? And we say, well, not really. And so Satan then says to us, well, then he's probably not really good, hey? And here's what we need to be able to say in the face of that temptation, just like the psalmist says, we don't live by your timing. We trust in the word of God who compared to all the unfaithfulness that we see is never unfaithful to us. There was nothing that will make the devil scamper faster away with his tail between his legs faster than you saying, Jesus is the Lord of my life and I will follow him no matter what. The Bible doesn't say run from the devil. It says resist the devil with the word of God and he'll flee from you. He's got nothing. This is what the psalmist says. Just checking, God. Just checking in here. Pretty frustrated. Feel like I'm all alone here. No one faithful around. But I trust you. You'll take care of us, won't you? Yes, we will. Says the Trinity. You got us, God. You got our back. You'll take care of the poor and the needy. You'll get their attention. Yes, I will. Yes, I will. How can we trust you, God? Because my words are better than anyone else's words. And I always do what I say. It's a good opportunity for us, I think, as they call up Steve and Maylene. Just to reflect on this. We have this little... Uh, I shouldn't say little. It's very important to us. It's a very important tradition. We call it communion, Lord's table, Lord's supper. Um, Depending on your tradition, maybe it's called the Eucharist for you. You understand it as that. It's a very important tradition for us because this tradition allows us each week to participate in a symbol that reminds us of why we can trust in God. We can trust in God because he sent his son And we know he sent his son because we celebrate every week that he came and that he died. That's what's symbolized in the cup and the bread. The bread symbolizes the body of Jesus Christ. He was not just a spirit who hovered into the world for a life of ease. He was a real person who really slept and really woke up, probably had B.O., and he died a physical death for us. The cup symbolizes blood. May sound creepy to you, but blood is very important in the Bible story because blood always represents life. Always. Always, always, always. See for yourself. Read through scripture and see every time there's blood, there's somehow life that's represented there and there's something special about blood and the way that it is shed or the way that it is dealt with because it always represents life. And so essentially, what do we have in the representation of the cup? We have the life of Jesus. 
that he is not dead. He is living. He is on the throne. And one day he's going to make all of this right. And all of the unfaithfulness that we see will be made right. And all of those who have trusted in Jesus Christ will see everyone gets what's appropriately coming to them. Thankfully, Jesus said, if you trust in me, you'll never get what's coming to you. You'll get what's coming to me. And so that's why we can celebrate this together. So I'd just encourage you even this morning, take some moments. If you have had these questions about God, this is your opportunity to put your faith in Jesus Christ once again.